Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The podcast is about to begin. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 115 of the Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. I am your host, Tino Romero Jr., a.k.a. the Graveyard Grumbler. Today's episode is a pretty creepy one. It's actually kind of bizarre more than creepy. I wanted to do this for the longest time, and now that I have the chance, I am going to do it because I enjoy it. I will, first off, I want to thank everyone for bearing with me. I've been, work has been insanely crazy. A lot of things up and down. Just didn't ever have the time to record. I know it's been over a month or just about a month, and I do apologize. I want to thank everyone for sticking to it, sticking through it with me. Now, let's go ahead and get into the episode. Today's episode, episode 115, is about creepy movie curses. I only picked two because the rest of them were kind of, and didn't really, didn't really creep me out. But the ones that I'm going to tell you about are actually really creepy coincidences, I guess you can call them. And, I mean, one, two of them are actually two of my pretty decent favorite movies that I enjoyed watching when I was a wee little lad, when I was growing up as a, as a little youngster grumbler. So let's go ahead and get into it. So the first movie we're going to get into that had creepy coincidences is The Exorcist. Of course, we all heard the the, the crap that went around with The Exorcist and, and the rule, not the rules, but the the creepy, eerie things that followed on the making of the movie. Now, I when I heard about it, I didn't really believe too much into it. And then I started reading about it when I was doing this episode. And, I'll, and I started looking at it. I'm like, holy crap. That's just too much of a coincidence. So the first movie curse that we're going to get into is The Exorcist. The filming of The Exorcist was done over a nine-month period. The main set, a reproduction of the Georgetown home, was built in a warehouse in New York. During the filming, a number of curious incidents and accidents took place on the set and plagued those involved with the production. Like I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of lure that came around the movie of The Exorcist that a lot of people were kind of questioning. And of course, you know, you have some some horror fans and they're going to throw it in there and, and they're going to make the, the correlation and, and make it relate. Right. Right. So let's get into it. In addition, the budget of the film rose from $5 million to more than twice that amount. Obviously, any film production that lasts more than a month or so will see its share of accidents and mishaps. But The Exorcist seems to have been particularly affected by unforeseeable calamities. Coincidence? Perhaps. But it left the cast and crew shaken. Hmm. The first incident occurred around 2.30 a.m. one Sunday morning when a fire broke out on the set. There was only one security guard at the Seiko 54th Street Studios when the McNeil house set fire and burned with the exception of Reagan's room, which remained unharmed. Now, just think about what I just said. There was a fire that broke out on the set at 2.30 in the morning, which is kind of bizarre. There was only one security guard on, on duty and the entire set burned down with the exception of Reagan's room. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with The Exorcist, which I wouldn't imagine anyone not being familiar with The Exorcist, especially if you're listening to my podcast. The Exorcist is about a, a possession of a little girl, Reagan, who turns out to be one of the most god-awful, demonized movies that happened for its time. If you remember the movie... All the entire exorcism and everything took place in Reagan's room. But for, for a fire to break out at 2.30 in the morning and nothing in the room was harmed, was disturbed or damaged, that seems a little bizarre if you ask me. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but hey, Tino, it, things happen, blah, blah, blah. But yo, the entire set burned down. But Reagan's room, which is completely based off the devil possessing a little child didn't burn down. So when I started doing this episode, I, I was like, eh, let me see what, it, what it's about. And then I read this and it, gave, it actually gave me the creeps to think that the entire set burned down except Reagan's room where the exorcism slash possession occurred. Huh. Ironically, as soon as the new set was ready, the sprinkler system broke down causing an additional two-week delay. So once the set was rebuilt, and of course, it all has to pass through inspection and everything has to go through. Now, the sprinkler system broke down, causing an additional two-week delay. Now, do you think overall that some sort of power, some sort of entity didn't want this movie to be made? Or was it just like, like I mentioned earlier, was it a coincidence? 
you let me know. Let me in the let me know in the comments. Graveyard Grumbler at mail.com. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast on Instagram. You let me know. It, this is a little too coincidental for me for my own good. Few of the actors in the film escape personal troubles during the shoot. Just just as Max von Sydow, the uh, father Marion, touched down in New York to film his first scenes, his brother died unexpectedly in Sweden. Vaughn himself became very ill later on during the filming. So, the main father, Father Marin, was perfectly fine, and but then mysteriously became ill during the filming. But on the flip side, his brother died unexpectedly in Sweden. Now, when, when I looked that up, allegedly... Supposedly, there was no type of illness. There was no type of, of physical ailment that was bothering Father Marin's brother. That's why it was unexpectedly. There was no freak accident. There was nothing. He just didn't wake up. He just died. Again, it makes me scratch my eyebrows and say, hmm, why would this shit happen? Especially, especially during the filming of a movie about the devil. Now, when Father Marin later became ill during the filming, come on now. I mean, remember, this was the devil trying to break down the priest to, keep, to, keep, to make sure that nobody interfered with the complete possession and overtaking of Reagan, pretty much killing her at the end of the movie. Well, I mean, I'm not going to spoil anything, but that's the end result. They're going to suck the entire life form of whoever host that they choose until there's no, no life left in it. And then they move on to another, throw it in the gutter, go buy another. Irish actor Jack McGoran, Burke Dennings, died only one week after his character was killed by the demon in the movie. Jason Miller, Father Karras, was stunned when his young son Jordan was struck down on an empty beach by a motorcyclist who appeared out of nowhere. Now listen to this. Irish actor Jack McGowan, who played Burke Dennings, died only one week after his character was killed by the demon in the movie. Now listen to what I'm telling you guys. All right, listen to it. The guy, the character who died in the movie, the person who played Burke Dennings ended up dying in real life one week after his character was fictionally killed in the movie. And then on even more creepier page on something that extends creepy even more, Father Karras, his young son, was struck down by an empty beach, or excuse me, was struck down on an empty beach by a motorcyclist who appeared out of nowhere. Look, man, I don't know how, how much truth this is stretching. I don't know how much exaggeration this is exaggerating. But what I do know is that if you're on an empty beach and all of a sudden you're, you're, you get ran over by a random motorcyclist who came out of nowhere, it makes the hair, if I had hair in the back of my head, stand up and kind of tickle my neck a little with a little ghost. What do you, boy, I tell you. The one that really creeped me out the most, though, was that the character that died, that was killed by Reagan or by the devil, one week later, the actual actor died. That one is the one that really fucked up my mentals. I'm like, yo, can this curse really be true? Oh, you don't believe it yet? Well, let's go ahead and keep going. The boy almost died. We're talking about the boy who was struck. Ellen Burstyn, Chris, Chris McNeil, wrenched her back badly during one of the scenes when she was slapped by the possessed girl. The stunt went badly awry, and she was laid up in bed for several weeks after, afterward, causing more delays in the filming. If you remember, there was a scene in there where, where I think it was her, the mother walked up to Reagan, and Reagan just backhanded the shit out of her, and she went flying across the room. Now, that scene where she's screaming and... Ah, ah, she was really hurt. She really fucked her back up in that scene. No other occurrences with the with the straps. Nothing with any kind of mechanical issues have ever had occurred prior to that. But ironically, slash coincidentally, when Reagan, who at that time was was playing the possessed child, smacks the lady, smacks Chris McNeil, right on the smacker, she hurts her back, causing more delays. Cause, I mean, think about that. You were perfectly fine and all of a sudden when you got to fight the devil, bippity-bop-pow, pippity-pap-scap-paps. Now you're hurt and you're laid up and now the filming is delayed even longer. 
Yo, okay, look, man. I'm not about curses. I'm really not. I'm not about hauntings and goblins and boo. Maybe I am a little bit. But this shit right here is just too too creepily eerie coincidental over the fact that people are getting hurt in a movie about the devil where the devil's hurting people. Let's continue. Blair also suffered a back injury, in her case, a lower spinal fracture during the take that was also used in the film. After being too loosely strapped to the bed when it was being rocked around, Oh my God, you remember the scene where the bed starts shaking and she's all, oh my gosh. And I mean, the bed, she's getting like tossed all over across the bed. She hurt her back there and that screaming and wailing that she did, that was actually her writhing in pain. Writhing in pain because she was legitimately hurt during that scene. Listen, man, I don't know about a lot, but what I do know What I do know is that this shit is a little creepy. This shit's a little too weird. Now, I want you to go back and watch that movie and where she's screaming on the bed, that's where Reagan actually legitimately got hurt. She developed scoliosis as a result. It was far more serious than I ever imagined and and it really affected my health negatively for a long time, stated Reagan. Excuse me, stated Blair. She further developed a lifelong aversion to cold due to having to spend so much time in the refrigerated room set wearing only a nightgown and long underwear. So the scene where they're breathing in air, I mean, they're breathing out their cold, their hot breath, and and you can see everyone shivering and shaking, that wasn't studio effects. They legitimately cranked down some air conditioners and put some cold-ass air inside of there in order to create that effect in the room. If you remember, Reagan was legitimately in just a nightgown. So all the cold air that's coming out of her mouth isn't studio effects. Now, if you, I was looking back at it. If you check it out yourself, you notice that, or you would notice that, that, that Reagan and those scenes took over and over. I mean, the majority of the time was the entire bedroom scenes was when Reagan was, getting, was having the exorcism performed, right? Right. So now picture that. We have this young gal in there, really, you know, really small, petite. And she's in extreme cold for extended periods of time in just a nightgown and some long undies. I mean, now apparently her body, she can't have caught I me. Mean, if a cold air, if cold breeze hits her, she, that's it. If she's in pain, gets cold and has to be warmed up immediately, apparently. You know, I, 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 I get for authenticity. I really do. I understand all of that stuff. However, what I don't understand is putting your actors and actresses in such extreme conditions to where they, they're their health is physically, legitimately, and long-term affected by whatever was going on. I get it. You want to do the best you can to make the best movie you can ever could. I get that. However, yo, people are getting hurt. Linda Blair broke her back and developed scoliosis because of the scene on her when she was getting rocked around on the bed before she was fully possessed. Now we have lifelong aversion to cold due to having to spend so much time in refrigerated bedroom set only wearing a nightgown and long underwear. Look, man, I'll get, I'm all for it. I'm all for getting the best you can, the best way, the best shoot. But come on, man. Now you're putting people's health in danger. Coincidence? I think not. In New York, one of the carpenters accidentally cut off his thumb on the set and one of the lighting technicians lost a toe. The location trip to Iraq was delayed from the spring, which is relatively cool, to July, the hardest, the hottest part of the summer, when the temperatures rose to 130 degrees and higher. Now, according to reports, again, I'm just going off of what I read. This carpenter was one of the best carpenters. He's been, he was a journeyman carpenter, been carpentering for a long ass time. And then boom, some freak accident. Like, I think it was like some uh, issue with the tool that he was using. Cut his goddamn thumb off on set. Cut it off. Had to go to the hospital, of course. And there was another delay. They had to do the investigation. They had to make sure the set was clear, that everything was great. But still, an experienced carpenter is going to cut off his own thumb. And I couldn't find how the lighting technician lost his toe, but apparently some sort of thing pinched it off and literally just swiped the goddamn toe. Again, if you're making a film directly about the devil, is it expected to have weird, eerie, bizarre things occur during the filming of the movie? Or is this just mumbo jumbo? Now, every single person that worked on this set, actors, technicians, everybody, cast, crew, it doesn't matter who it was, all has said the same thing. 
They all witnessed it. They all experienced it. And they just had some weird feeling whenever they arrived on set to go to work. And then what's crazy is that a lot of people actually died. I mean, the location of when they delayed the spring, you remember at the beginning when they were digging up everything and the dude was sweating, Father Marin, he was legitimately sweating. It was 135 degrees during the filming of that scene. Out of the 18-man crew that was sent there, Fredkin, Fredkin lost the services of nine of them at one time or another due to dysentery, dysentery or sunstroke. Dysentery, my bad. <laughs> to make matters worse, the bronze statue of the Neo-Assyrian winged demon Pazazu, which was packed in a 10-foot crate, got lost in an air shipment from Los Angeles and ended up in Hong Kong, which caused another two-week delay. Look, man. That was the 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 neo Assyrian winged demon Pazazu. That was the main haunting. That's what opened up the floodgates and people were here and there. And then all of a sudden, Reagan got was was haunted or was possessed. But think about it: half of your crew, half of your crew, couldn't work because of dysentery or sunstroke. It's hundred thirty plus in fucking Iraq. Of course, they're not going to be able to survive. That shit is insane. And then to make matters worse, the creepy statue went to a completely different country, a completely different country when it was supposed to be on be in Iraq, which caused what even more delays. Now, here's my here's my theory on this. Do you think the demon ghost goblin possessed demon entities were doing it so they can have more free range, more more limity blimity and on the on set to fuck with the cast and crew? Or was it all coincidence? Let me know. Graveyardgrumbler at mail.com. Graveyardgrumbler podcast on Instagram. Let me know. This shit is a little too creepy. This shit's a little too weird. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I, if I should go with a curse or should I go with coincidence? Right now, I'm kind of leaning toward curse. I mean, I, I again, I looked it up and majority of the curses that I read about were all haunted films. Hmm. Hmm. Weird, right? Right. One of the actors said, quote, I don't know if it was a jinx, really, actress Ellen Burstyn later said, but there was some really strange goings on during the making of the film. Yeah, you fucked your backup because you got thrown on a mechanical failure, uh, what is that called, harness, which caused delays. Of course, some weird goings ons was happening. Your crew is getting fucked up. We were dealing with some really heavy material and you don't fool around with that kind of material without it manifesting in some way. No shit. There were many deaths on the film. Linda's grandfather died. The assistant cameraman's wife had a baby that died. The man who refrigerated the set died. The janitor who took care of the building was shot and killed. I think overall there were nine deaths during the course of the film, which is an incredible amount. It was scary. Okay, let me rewind this. Linda's grandfather died. During the filming of this movie, the assistant cameraman's wife had a baby that died. The baby was died during the baby died during birth. It was a stillbirth. Weird because according to reports, according to reports, the baby was completely healthy. There was no issues. Again, this is reports. I could I might have got this completely wrong. If I do, please correct me. I might have gotten this way out of left field. I might be talking wild on the yard right now. But according to the reports that I found. The baby was pretty decent. There was no issues. But this was also the 70s. So, I mean, how accurate can medical wellness checks be? Right? Right. But still, a stillbirth? During the filming of, of, of a movie about a child being possessed? The janitor who took care of the building was shot and killed during the filming. Allegedly, this warehouse area where the set was built was very low crime. Again, this I might be I might be speaking wild on the yard, talking out my neck right now. But this was these are the reports that I found off, off of my several hours of research getting together this this podcast episode. And then the the person who refrigerated the set also died. He was a relatively young individual. I believe he was in his forties. I'm in my forties, and I can't picture myself dying, especially especially filming especially filming something on. Demon possession. I, I just, I don't get it. I, I don't, I don't understand. Is it too weird? Yes, it's too weird. I mean, think about it. 
when you have the main actress, Linda Blair, and someone close to her died while filming a movie about demons who, who find out who your family are and then kill them by the power of yourself or through you or through weird coincidence. I mean, you have to scratch your head and wonder, shit, is this connected? Is this real? The one that really fucked me up, the one that really, really, really tripped me out was the baby that died and the, ref- the guy who refrigerated the set. The guy who, who, who refrigerated Linda Blair's bedroom or Reagan's bedroom in order to create the effect of in- extreme cold because the devil likes it cold. I'm guessing the devil might be going through menopause, so therefore has to keep the room refrigerated. I don't know. What do you think? Things got so bad that well that William Fredkin took some drastic measures. Father Thomas Birmingham SJ from the Jesuit community at Fordham University had been hired as a technical advisor for the film, along with Father John Nicola, who, while not a Jesuit, had been taught by Jesuit theologians at St. Mary of the Lake Seminary in Mondalian, Illinois. Look, man, if you're so worried and so freaked out that you have to hire legitimate priests in order to try to stand, I guess, spiritual guard during the filming of one of the most fucked up movies in the 70s, maybe you should rethink on making the film. I'm actually interested to know if the remake of The Exorcist is going to have just as many issues or if it's going to be somewhat bland and uneventful. It's going to be interesting. Fredkin came to Birmingham and asked him to exercise the set. The priest was unable to perform an actual exorcism, but he did give a solemn blessing in a ceremony that was attended by everyone then on the set, from Max von Sadeau to the technicians and grips. Nothing else happened on the set after the blessing, Birmingham stated, but around that time, there was a fire in the Jesuit residence set in Georgetown. Oh my gosh, hold on, hold the fuck on. So we get an actual priest to come in, do some sort of blessing because obviously he wasn't qualified to do an actual exorcism on the set. You have to get that approved by the Catholic Church. And a side note, the, the getting okay, getting permission from the Catholic Church just recently started because there was an, a huge increase in deaths in attempted exorcism. And it was looking really bad for the Catholic Church. So from then on, they said, yo... Um, yeah, we're going to have to get permission and it's going to have to be okayed by the highest of priests and archdiocese and bishops in order for you to perform an exorcism. You're not just going to go in there and say, um, I need an old priest and a young priest. This house has been cleansed. No, now you need a permission slip. You need three signatures and you need someone to pat you on the back and say, go get him, kid. But here's the ironic part. Here's what's kind of creepy is that the set that caught fire was the Jesuit residence set in Georgetown. Meaning that the mock church, the mock religious area on set during the exorcist, I mean, we can watch the movie. I've watched it about a bazillion times. Caught fire after the blessing of a real priest. Again, I'm not saying that it's cursed, but what I'm saying is that it's fucking cursed. You know, I'm past coincidence. That, that's way past coincidence. Knowing that, number one, number one, the part, the religious portion of the set caught fire after a goddamn blessing. That's the number one and number two and number three. Boy, I tell you, let's read more about this weird shit. And while nothing else tragic occurred on the set, strange events and odd coincidences were reported during the post-production work on the film. They were, Frederick said, quote, there were strange images and visions that showed up on the film that were never planned. There are double exposures in the little girl's face at the end of one reel that are unbelievable. Now, I try to find that. I try to look that up. And of course, the editing supervisor and the editing crew and everyone who did the post-production work on this film all said the same thing, that they, they confirm the statement by Fredkin. Yo, okay, look at man. If I'm re-editing some shit and all of a sudden I'm looking through my reels you know, th- this was back in the big reels. It's not as advanced as we have now. We can just throw that shit on a computer. And all of a sudden, you see double face images. Come on now. Double exposures in the little girl's face at the end of one reel? Come on now. What I want to... I'm trying to find that unedited version. I'm trying to get that DVD release. Send me that DVD release, my boy. 
I'll buy that shit right now. Of course, if it's not too expensive. I mean, I already have the movie. I have the, ed, the unedited director's cut. I don't, I mean, I'm not gonna spend a lot of money, but I'll buy another one so I can see the double exposure of the little girl's face. I wanna be freaked out again, man. Let me tell you this right now, though. If I watch that movie and I see what they're talking about, I'll probably turn the movie off because fuck that shit. The film opened on December 26, 1973 to massive crowds. Within weeks of the first public screenings of the film, stories started to make the rounds that an audience, that audience members were fainting and vomiting in the theaters. Okay. I understand that this was back in the 70s and up until that time, this was probably the most horrific, scariest, freakiest movie that came out during that time. Now, there's slashers out around that time. You have you, you have various other movies around that time, but nothing to the effect and as graphic nature as The Exorcist around that time. Can we all agree? Yeah, we can all agree. There's one thing that I do agree on is that if you have that opportunity to get fucked up in the movie theater and faint and vomit from a goddamn movie, boy, I tell you, that motherfucker better win an Oscar, a Grammy, a Tony, and whatever award you can ever get. You know how, what kind of effect that movie would have to be around that time? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm 41 years old, but what I wish is that I wish I was old enough to go watch that movie in theaters when it first was released so I can feel the, the intensity of that film when it came out. I mean, think about it. People were fainting and vomiting. At the, can you imagine eating some Whoppers and some nachos and all of a sudden, I can't take it. I, I can't. I can't. No, I need to turn my head, but I can't watch it. I, I have to. Boy, I tell you. There were also reports of disturbing nightmares and reportedly a number of theater ushers had to be placed under a doctor's care or quit their jobs after experiencing successive showing of the movie. So these ushers were so traumatized after multiple showings of the movie where they had to be in there that they needed to be under doctor's care or quit their job because they could not hack it anymore. Disturbing nightmares. Now, some of the disturbing nightmares that I saw, or excuse me, that I read were of ushers talking about that they saw Reagan coming in their sleep. They had dreams of them themselves being possessed with multiple figures standing around them. One usher said that if the dream was so realistic that the room was cold and they woke up bundled neck down or excuse me, up to the neck in blankets in summer because the, the dream that they had, or excuse me, the nightmare they had was so realistic. Now it makes sense why this movie, historically, has been dubbed as one of the scariest movies ever to be made. It's not because the actual movie itself is freaky. It is at the same time. It's not. What makes it freaky is all the shit that occurred on set post-release, uh, all the people that were affected by the movie, that's what gave this this run and this whole this whole what is that called um, history uh, reputation of being the most scariest film ever made because of all the effect that it had on the viewers. Could you imagine? The, I, I, I just, it, it's bizarre to me that a movie was so intense that they had realistic nightmares to where they had to quit their job. The film created a widespread interest in exorcism, but the result of this was often questionable. Scores of disturbed people began showing up at churches with claims of being possessed while their problems should have been attributed to mental illness instead. I threw that in there because, again, if you are suffering from any sort of mental illness, depression, whatever you think it is, please go get help. Speak to someone. Speak to a helpline. It's better to speak to someone than no one. Trust me. Just go get help. Mental illness has long since the beginning of time been misinterpreted as being possessed, being disturbed, being troubled or whatever. I mean, they used to cut off people's frontal lobes to see if they can change their entire fucking behavior because they were disturbed. I mean, hell, women having their periods back in the time would consider them witches because they were bleeding and not dying. So, what, I mean, that, that tells you about our, our psychiatric and mental health treatment over time. 
In addition, renegade priests and self-proclaimed holy men started billing themselves as exorcists and demonologists, hoping to cash in on the popularity of the film and the widespread interest in the occult that followed its release. I'm going to throw one name out there. Number one, quick, right in a hurry. The goddamn Ed Warren. Ed and Lorraine Warren, the biggest grifters that you can ever grift out of everyone to grift money from grifting. We all know Ed and Lorraine Warren with uh, the Amityville House Horror, the Conjuring, the Annabelle doll, all those things that turned out to be very questionable, close to not realistic. And again, he made millions off of a self-proclaimed demonologist. Look, man, I'm, I'm going to lean more towards a curse. There's too many weird coincidences that show that it was just weird, freaky mishaps. I mean, you had people's, you had cast members actually die from the film or during the filming. You had one guy get shot in a relatively low crime area. I'm not, I, I, I can't, I'm not a psychic. I can't tell the future. I can't tell the past. But what I do know is that when there are too many weird coincidences, I mean, a baby died stillbirth when they were given a clean bill of health. Uh, Linda Blair's grandfather died during the filming of this. Come on now. Let's move on to another movie. So this next movie that I'm going to get into was another one of my favorites. When I was a little kid, it kind of freaked me out. It made my butthole pucker just a little bit. It wasn't as scary as, say, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1. That movie scared the absolute shit out of me. That is, as a little child, one of the scariest movies I have ever watched when I was a kid. But The Poltergeist, we all know, again, surrounded by curse, by lore, by being one of the most... Fucked up movies, not the actual movie, but what happened, what occurred on set to the actors. So let's get into what the curses were on the Poltergeist. The majority of the fuel for the alleged curse stems from the deaths of multiple cast members. In total, four cast members died during and soon after the filming of the series. Two of these tragic deaths were highly unexpected and puzzling, leading many fans to speculate on the trilogy's eerie implications. Now this one, I mean, I'm not going to lie, man. This one, this one tucked the... the the, uh, the, the heart strings a little. This one kind of grabbed me by the neck and, and kind of shook me like, yo, why? And it always makes me question the American health system. Carol Ann Freeling, the young focal point of the series, was played by Heather O'Rourke. Only six years old when the first Poltergeist film was released, O'Rourke captivated audiences with her stark blonde hair, doll-like appearance, and big inquisitive eyes. Sadly, however... She was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987. For you to misdiagnose a six-year-old, it's, it's pretty fucked up. And for those of you who are suffering from Crohn's disease, regardless of the severity, we all know that it's extremely painful, extremely uncomfortable, and very dangerous to your health. And of course, because she was misdiagnosed at such an early age and had to deal with this shit for a while... You're probably not going to like what I'm going to tell you next. The following year, O'Rourke fell ill again, and her symptoms were casually attributed to the flu. A day later, she collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest. The following year, O'Rourke fell ill again, and her symptoms were casually attributed to the flu. If we just did a thorough fucking examination this little girl probably would have been able to live a full, long life. But because we have some dumbass doctors in the dumbass American medical system, she was, oh, she's just sick because she's little and little kids can't have severe diseases like Crohn's disease. Absolutely not. Shut the fuck up. A day later, she collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest. After being airlifted to a children's hospital in San Diego, O'Rourke died during an operation to correct a bowel obstruction, and it was later believed that she had been suffering from a congenital intestinal abnormality. <sighs> if you're plugged up and nothing's going anywhere, you're going to die. Your body starts attacking itself, you start getting sepsis, and then you just can't pass anything like poo. You need to pass poo. You, you can't keep that in you forever how long you think you can, you just can't do it. Unfortunately, the gal died at a very young age, misdiagnosed for initially, misdiagnosed again when she fell ill and had a heart attack. And then later during a corrective bowel obstruction, which already by that time we all know was way too late to even try to attempt it. She died, died as a young little gal. 
See, and that... Do I do I attribute this to the curse of the poltergeist? Mm, I think it's just an eerie coincidence. I mean, she did successfully film all three movies. Did she do it physically successfully? No. According to reports, during some filmings of the movie, she was in extreme pain and was given pain meds to deal with it and continue filming. This is a fucking kid, and we're pumping her full of dope because the show must go on. Dominique Dunn, who played the original older sister, Dana Frilling, met an equally tragic and, un, and unforeseen fate. In 1982, Dunn separated from her partner, John Sweeney. In November of that year, he showed up at Dunn's house pleading for her to take him back. Not so bad. We get it. You know, she was uh, harassed. She was stalked. It's not, I mean, it's not a curse, right? Right. I mean, it, don't ever stalk and, and fucking follow someone and threaten someone. If they tell you it's over, it's over, yo. Get over it. Go get help. Leave them alone. Stalking is bad. It's illegal. And anyone who stalks anyone should just be punched in the face with pointed brass knuckles. So this dude talking about, baby, please take me back. Please don't go, girl. You know, please take me back, baby. You know, I just playing. You know, I love you. Well, of course, when, when Sweeney broke up and said, man, you're not for me. It's over. Leave me alone. I don't like you. When she refused, Sweeney grabbed Dunn's neck, choked her until she was unconscious, and left her to die in her Hollywood home's driveway. Sweeney was sentenced to six and a half years in prison, but was released after, get this, are you guys ready? Sit down. You in the back, sit down, because you're blocking my view. Sweeney was only sentenced to six and a half years in prison, but was released after three years and seven months. We had this individual who killed someone because he was angry she did not take him back. Lover's rage, as they called it. And he only served three and a half years of his six-year sentence. This bitch should have gotten 20-plus years to life, plus life, plus life, add life. This motherfucker should not have only gotten six and a half years in prison. That goes for anyone who murders anyone. There should be a zero tolerance. I'm not just saying that because it was a male to a female. Anyone who murders anyone in cold blood should be sentenced to life plus life. Add life. But for this fool to get out after only three years, let's let a killer out on the streets. It's okay. He said he was sorry and he was being a good boy in prison. Let's let him go. Listen, man. No, just don't. Do I, do I attribute this to a curse or coincidence? I'm still leaning to coincidence. Not so much of a cursed. Cursed. <laughs> Not so much of a curse. Let's continue. The other two cast member deaths, while unfortunate, were not unpredictable or mysterious. The evil preacher came from Poltergeist 2 was played by Julian Beck. In 1983, Beck had been diagnosed with stomach cancer, which took his life soon after he finished work on the second installment of the series. The same film was met with further tragedy after Will Sampson, who played Taylor, the Native American shaman, died after undergoing a heart-lung transplant, which had a very slim survival rate. Again, eerie coincidence. I don't really blame it on a curse. I mean, hell, this shaman had a heart-lung transplant in the goddamn 80s. They, they couldn't even diagnose the little girl with Crohn's disease properly. What makes you think they're going to successfully transplant your heart and lungs without killing you? In America. Come on now. Stomach cancer. If you're diagnosed stomach cancer and it's, it, they don't catch it in time, which they probably didn't, you only have one outcome, right? What's the prognosis? Death. Okay. Again, it's not a curse. It's more eerie coincidence. Cast deaths were not the only agents of the curse's pro, prolor, proliferation. God dang as the other peculiar and creepy legends surround the film franchise. Joe Beth Williams, who played mom Diane Freeling in the first two films, claimed that director Spielberg insisted on using actual human skeletons as prompt in an attempt to save money. Now listen to this side note, okay? So the mom was saying that Spielberg wanted to use real skeletons. Remember the scene where the, the, the neighborhood pool, because they were buried, they, they, their house was built, on a native burial ground. 
And when it when the rain was coming, the water rushed, the water washed the ground away, and all these and the pool filled up with all these skeletons and skulls. Remember that? I remember that. And I just it's like I watched the movie yesterday. But during that scene, Mr. Spielberg wanted to use real skeletons versus plastic skeletons. Do you want to know the reason why? Of course you do, because if you didn't, you wouldn't be listening to the podcast. It's not because of the realism. Let's make it more real. It wasn't because we didn't like the light glowing off of the plastic skeletons. No, it is because at that time, real skeletons were cheaper than plastic skeletons. Hold up. Wait a minute. What the actual fuck? Why would the skeleton of actual human beings be cheaper than plastic skeletons any time of this entire existence of world? It should be the other way around, right? Skeletons should be dirt cheap and, and, or plastic skeletons should be dirt cheap and human skeletons should be outrageously unaffordable unless you're like, you live in Wakanda or you're Iron Man or Bill Gates because we know how filthy rich Bill Gates is. But during the filming of a movie, you're telling me that real human skeletons are cheaper than plastic. So Spielberg said, yo, we need to save cost because I had to pay myself a lot of money. Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and uh, let's just get some real ones. Why? Because they're cheaper. Williams' claim has never been verified, but it persists to this day in the lore surrounding the film's curse. You really think that they're going to admit that they used real skeletons, especially with everything that's going on right now? No, they're not going to admit that shit. Let me know in the comments, Graveyard Grumbler podcast on Instagram, if you think that the skeletons were real or if you think they were really fake. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a shot in the dark and say, because this movie was made in the 80s and safety regulations were very low, it's not like we, they had Cal OSHA back then. What I'm going to throw out there on the limb is that those motherfuckers were really real. They, they were probably someone's aunt and uncles, someone's cousin from down the street, and those motherfuckers were swimming around with the actors because they were real. I don't think they were fake. Let me know. GraveyardGrumbler at mail.com. GraveyardGrumblerPodcast on Instagram. Let me know if you think those skeletons were real or fake. I'm going with real because it's of the 80s. That's why. We all know uh, everyone who grew up in the 80s knew how the 80s were growing up. Those were real skeletons. Concerned about the use of real skeletons on the set of the first film, Native American actor and Poltergeist 2, the other side star, Will Sampson, performed an exorcism on the set of the second film in 1984. According to Williams, he went to the set late at night by himself to do it. The next day, the cast supposedly felt relieved. Look, man, if you go into a restaurant and someone said, nah, man, I sterilized that shit, it's going to make you feel better because someone said that they did it right, right? They cleaned it out. They're going to tell you they cleaned it out and you're going to say, great, I feel better now. Let's move on and I'm going to eat some ribs right off the table, right? Right. Well, except for me, I don't eat ribs. So did he really perform an exorcism or was he just saying that to make people feel a little better? Hmm... I'm going to go with he probably said that just to make people feel a little better. So, again, let's wrap up Let's wrap up the Poltergeist. The Poltergeist curse, yeah, although it's kind of fucked up, I don't believe that the film was legitimately cursed. I believe there was just a lot of weird coincidences, not like The Exorcist. The Exorcist, to me, was legitimately cursed. The Poltergeist, eh, not really. We have one more movie to get into. And I think a lot of people, it, this is a very underrated movie. I watched this movie the first time and thought it was garbage. The second time I watched it, I thought it was less garbage. The third time I watched it, I, I understood it and appreciated it a lot more. It's not one of my favorites, but I enjoy watching it. Just before I get into it, to sum it up, let me close the Poltergeist film out. The Poltergeist movie, eh, it was a little fucked up. I don't think it was cursed. I think it was just more legitimate coincidences. Let me know if you think the film is cursed. GraveyardGrumbler at mail.com. GraveyardGrumbler podcast on Instagram. I want to know your guys' opinion. So the last movie we're going to get into. Rosemary's Baby. Just to sum it up, it is a movie about a lady who gives birth to the devil and the kid is the fucking devil. They never show the kid because it's the devil. I mean, again, it, the, the whole point of the movie is really good. The, the acting and everything could have been a little bit better, but overall, it was a pretty good film. Arguably, the person who was hit the hardest by the curse of Rosemary Baby was the film's director, Roman Polanski, who, I, I wish I could do this live. Who knows who Roman Polanski is? If you guys know who Roman Polanski is, let me know in the comments. If you, be honest, okay? 
If you knew, as soon as I said that name, if you knew who Roman Polanski was, because I knew who it was as soon as I read the name, I knew exactly who that, who that person was. If you knew who it was before I finished this sentence, let me know in the comments, Graveyard Grumbler, uh, Graveyard Grumbler podcast on Instagram, Graveyard Grumbler at mail.com, not Gmail, just at mail.com. Let me know if you legitimately knew who Roman Polanski was. Roman Polanski initially wanted to include his wife, Sharon Tate, in the film as Rosemary, but was overruled by producer Robert Evans, who fought tooth and nail for Mia Farrow. Evans got his way, and Tate was was relegated to being an unnamed background character in a single party scene. So again, do you know who Sharon Tate is? I know who Sharon Tate is. I knew who Roman Polanski was married to as soon as I read his name. If you don't know, then I'm going to get into it right now. Now, with this, I'm going to say that I do believe that this movie was legitimately cursed. I 100% believe this movie was cursed based off what I'm about to read you, okay? A year after the film was released, Tate and some of her friends were staying in a rented house in Cielo Drive in Los Angeles when Tex Watson and some girls from the Manson family broke in. Watson and the girls doled out more than 100 piercing wounds between the four people, none of whom survived. If you don't understand what I just said, a year later after Rosemary's Baby was released, the Manson family broke into the house of Sharon Tate, killed her and her unborn baby, and killed four, three other, four other people in that party, in that dinner party that was being hosted by Sharon Tate in Roman Polanski's house. Remember, that was Helter Skelter. That was all that shit and all that, you know, that whole thing where, where uh, Charles Manson said that it was a white race that was going to rule over everything and all that bullshit. But, you know, it's not that it was a strange coincidence. I believe that because anyone who, who served on that movie, who performed on that movie, who acted in that movie, who worked on that movie was legitimately cursed because of more things that based off of what I'm going to read next, I should have read this part versus the, the, the first part that I just read, but I had to read it. So this right here makes me believe that the, that the whole movie was cursed. Maybe let me just get into it. The Dakota is one of the most famous buildings in New York, not just because it served as the exterior for the apartments in Rosemary's Baby, but because it was the site of John Lennon's demise. Let me read that one more time. The Dakota is one of the most famous buildings in New York, not because it served as the exterior for the apartments in Rosemary's Baby, but because it was the site of John Lennon's demise. For all of you youngsters out there who don't know who John Lennon is, John Lennon was one part of the Beatles. He was one of four of the Fab Four, the, one of the greatest bands to ever come out of England, to ever perform ever in the world. I'm not just saying that. That's literally by, by record sales, popularity, and blow on, so on and so forth. So John Lennon was shot in front of that building by a fanatic saying something about Helter Skelter and he broke up the Beatles and he destroyed his life. Built in 1884, the Dakota's Gothic style gives it all the darkness it, need to, it needs to convince you that it's the home to witches and, and producer Robert Evans claims that the whole time he was on set at the apartment building, he felt a distinctly eerie feeling. Lennon may not have had anything to do with Rosemary's baby, but, his, but he was friends with Mia Farrow, and when the Manson family dispatched Sharon Tate, they wrote Helter Skelter on the wall in blood. It's, Helter Skelter is a Beatles song, by the way. It's, pretty, it's actually a pretty good song. Helter Skelter is one of the songs on the White Album, which Manson used as a blueprint for his revolution. 11 years after Tate's passing, Lennon was slain outside of the apartment building when Mark David Chapman fired five rounds into the singer's back. You know, again... I think that anybody attached to that film or anybody around that building just met a, 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 an untimely demise. This is more of a curse to me than what it was for the guys. You may not be, you may not agree with me, Chewbacca. I understand you may not, Brian, you may not understand or agree with me either. However, it's true. That's the way I feel and that's how it's going to be. At the relatively young age of 38, the film's composer, Christophe Comedin, fell off a cliff in Los Angeles and suffered a cerebral hemorrhage just months after completing his work on the film. Now, this is, again, why I feel that this movie was actually cursed, okay? So, at the relatively young age of 38, the film's composer, Christophe Comedin, 
fell off a cliff in Los Angeles. All right. After the fall, Cometa went into a coma and languished for some time before finally passing away. As sad as this end was, it is made all the more unsettling when you realize that his fate mirrors that of Rosemary's friend, Hutch. This dude, this composer died in the same exact way that Hutch died in Rosemary's Baby. Like legitimately, play by play, exactly the way Hutch died. Which is fucking eerie if you ask me. You, you, you think, no, that's not true. It can't happen, blah, blah, blah. Yo, why? how coincidence that Rosemary's friend Hudge watched the movie, fell down a cliff and went into a coma and died of hemorrhaging just the way this composer did. Explain that to me, Blue's Clues. I will wait, graveyardgrumbler at mail.com, graveyardgrumblerpodcast on Instagram. Let me know. As far as curses go, Mia Farrow got off fairly light when it came to Rosemary's Baby. Before she was cast in the film, Farrow was married to Frank Sinatra, and he desperately wanted her to appear, uh, desperately wanted her to appear in a film with him. The detective also being produced by Robert Evans. Again, Frank Sinatra, we know, oh, blue eyes. Oh, strangers in the night, touching that little guy, scrolling through my phone, wanting to bone. You know that song, Frank Sinatra, oh, blue eyes, Mr. Pearly White's. He was filming the movie The Detective and wanted Mia Farrow to be involved with it. But at the same time, she's like, yo, I'm doing this movie now. It's kind of hard for me to make it there. Sinatra went as far to tell Farrow that he didn't see her in the part, but he decided to take on the project anyway while doing double duty in Sinatra's film. So when your husband says, yo, I don't see you playing the part of Rosemary's Baby, but I see you playing the part that I give you in my film. Maybe you should just do my film. But Mia Farrow's like, no, man, I want to do this film. I like it. I like the the script. I'm just going to go ahead and roll with it. As the production for Rosemary's Baby stretched on, she began flying back and forth from New York City to to Los Angeles to try and do both films. But Sinatra didn't feel like this was enough. Instead of working something out with Farrow, he sent his lawyer to the set of Rosemary's Baby and had Farrow served with divorce papers. How fucked up is that? Old blue eyes can't even pick up the phone, ring-a-ding-a-ding-a-ling-a, and say, yo, it's over, boo-boo. I don't want to see you anymore. You has got to go. No, he's going to be a little baby back bitch and send divorce papers to the set of Rosemary's Baby saying, yo, it's over. I don't want anything to do with you. You're a fake. You're a phony. And I wish I never laid eyes on you. The entire time, Mia Farrow was saying, yo, I'm going to go ahead and exhaust myself and try to do both films because I love my baby's daddy. I love you, boo-boo only to be kicked in the nuts and say, no, I don't want you anymore. That's fucked up, man. Fuck Frank Sinatra. I mean, think about it. Eh, is it, is it cursed? Nah, it could be anybody involved with the film, like I said. After the gruesome slaying of his wife and unborn son shortly after filming Rosemary's Baby, Roman Pulaski fell into a tailspin, which included addiction and crime. Now, I did not know this about Roman Polanski at all. I, I, I read a little bit of him and I knew that I knew that he had fallen into addiction. He, you know, he was burning like so much money on coke and booze. He was just doing a bunch of shit. But I didn't know this, and it makes me. I'm going to say this because I'm probably going to get into this conspiracy. It makes me believe that Hollywood is directly involved with pedophilia, trafficking, and et cetera. Now, don't don't hold me to that, but. There's been a lot of shit coming out that I'm probably going to get into shortly, probably in the next week or so, to where I, I, do, I do an episode on that. But, but I don't want to get too much into that. But I didn't understand that Roman Polanski, why what the fuck would he do this? Let me get into it. While guest editing the French edition of Vogue in 1977, Polanski came across the then 13-year-old Samantha Geimer, whom he coaxed into posing for a series of photo shoots. At one of these shoots, which took place at Jack Nicholson's house, Polanski plied the girl with alcohol and other harsh substances before sexually assaulting her multiple times. Shortly afterwards, Polanski was taken into custody and spent 42 days in jail before fleeing the country to avoid further prosecution. Get the fuck out of here. This fool plied this little girl with booze and other shit to rape her repeatedly and then fled the country. Why are we letting these multimillionaires, these celebrities get away with this shit? It's not just celebrities. It's everyone involved with the shit in general. If we don't let low-level criminals and little punks get away with the shit, we shouldn't let highfalutin celebrities and billionaire high-society people get away with the shit. 
He spent 42 days in jail before fleeing the country to avoid further prosecution. Get the- Boy, I tell you. It, it's, it's really sad that that shit actually occurred. And again, I'm probably going to do an episode on this, on, on the, the conspiracy of, of uh, child trafficking in Hollywood. So just bear with me on that. But I mean, come on now. Is this a curse? No, this is just a fucking dirtbag who, who's always been involved and interested in kids and decided to take it to the next level. Anybody who's suffering from that, please, my heart goes out to you. Get help. Speak to someone. Prosecute. William Castle has long been toted as a producer who saw the viability in Earl Levin's novel and sought to bring it to screen. In many ways, he was the man responsible for bringing the curse of Rosemary's Baby into the lives of so many people in the world of cinema. After the film was released, Castle was hit with kidney stones. In Castle's autobiography, he claimed that during surgery, he began to hallucinate scenes from the film and even shouted, saying, quote, Rosemary, for God's sake, drop that knife, end quote. He wrote that after getting the recognition he desired, he no longer cared. I was at home, very frightened of Rosemary's baby. Can you imagine being imprisoned by your own success? Boy, I tell you. The writer Ira Levin had a huge success on his hands with the novel for Rosemary's baby. It was a bestseller and the rights were almost immediately snatched up by William Castle. However, after the film was released, his life began to slowly crumble until he was a parody of himself. The year the film was released, his wife left him and he began receiving targeted strikes from the Catholic Church. She is the Catholic Church. Not surprising. Not surprising at all. Despite claiming that he never believed in witches or Satanism, Levin told Dick Cavat that he had become terrified as he grew older. The saddest part of Levin's downfall came 30 years after the release of Rosemary's Baby when he released Son of Rosemary, a poorly received sequel to his magnum opus. Is that really... A curse, no. I think the ones that I mentioned earlier were. It was way more of a curse than, than the poultry guys. The guy's poor success, the kidney stones, eh, not a big deal. However, the, the author who wrote the book is kind of disheartening. But hey, if you can't handle fame, don't get famous. Last movie, I thought I had one. I thought that was the last movie, but this is the last movie. We're going to get into The Omen. The Omen, again, was Probably one of my better favorite films. It's not one of my top most loved films, but it is a good film. I enjoy watching that. So if you haven't watched The Omen, check it out. It's pretty badass. Misfortune struck swift and soon, falling first upon The Omen's protagonist, played by Academy Award winner Gregory Peck. Peck reportedly canceled a flight he planned for reasons unknown. Some reports claim that the crew hired the plane to use for the cast, but ended up not needing the craft. Whenever there's an airplane involved, you never know what's going to happen. Is it coincidence or is it a curse? Mm, let, me, let, me, let me tell you this part and then you let me know if it's a curse. Either way, Peck was thankful he never got on. The plane crashed the same day, killing all passengers on board. More chilling, when it hit the ground, it landed on a vehicle with members of the pilot's family inside. Hold the fuck on. This is a curse, all right? Peck was thankful he never got on. The plane crashed the same day, killing all passengers on board. That's not even the fucked up part. The fucked up part is this. When it hit the ground, it landed on a vehicle with members of the pilot's family inside. Look, that is a one in a trazillion, bazillion, facillion, fafamillion, gagabillion, babaloo. Coincidence. That the same plane that's being, that's crashing kills the pilot's family members. Look, man. If anything says curse, this says curse. 1,000%, this says curse. Let, let me, the omen was probably worse than the exorcist. Let me get into the reasons why. Mace Newfield, the omen's executive producer, had an encounter he dubbed more than coincidental when he, when he, Peck, and others planned to dine out at a restaurant one evening. Before the group was to appear at the restaurant, the building was reported destroyed in a violent explosion. How are you going to have dinner reservations You're going to go kick it at a restaurant, then kaboom, that bitch goes out in flames. Weird. Newfield may have felt victimized by a curse again when he and his wife checked out early from their hotel in London. It was a short time after that the hotel was leveled by yet another explosion. Maybe you shouldn't go out in public. Maybe you shouldn't go out in public anymore. Maybe you should stay home and enjoy the fact that you're probably going to get blown up, so you just might as well stay at home and not get blown up. Reports from the time insisted the IRA, which is the Irish Republican Army, which is a huge militant gang uh, from, from Ireland, had been responsible for several explosions around London at the time. 
even if others attributed the violence to a curse set forth by the devil himself. Look, man, if if it's a curse, why? It, it must have been a strange, eerie coincidence that the same hotel that exploded shortly after the director of Rosemary's Baby, a, a movie about the devil, once again, checked out, missing it by inches. Do you think the devil left that by mere coincidence just to fuck with him? Or did you think that this was just weird, ironic coincidence? Let me know. The special effects designer responsible for designing the omen's chilling decapitation scene fell victim to one of the most creepy and tragic events. After moving on from the film to begin his next project, he was in a head-on crap. Oh, my gosh. Look, man, I, again, I tell you. When I do these, I throw, I dump a lot of info, edit out what I think doesn't belong in there, and then I go ahead and read without even really reading before I read. So the special effects designer responsible for designing the Omen's chilling decapitation scene, all right, the same guy, was involved in a car accident. He was in a head-on, he was on a head-on car crash that decapitated his wife. Watch the Omen. Check out that scene, then you'll know why this is so creepy and so fucking eerie. When I talk about curses, this is exactly what I'm talking about right here. When someone who is involved in the film becomes a victim of something that almost exactly occurred, if not exactly occurred, in the movie itself, yo, he he was a special effects guy, making it seem like someone's head was decapitated only for him to be involved in a head-on car crash that, what, decapitated his wife. God damn, that's crazy. He drew the comparison to the film in hindsight and even claimed there was a road sign to the side of the crash pointing travelers to a town called Omnin, 66.6 kilometers away. Boy, I tell you. So I looked that up, and there's really a sign that says Omnin, 66.6. And when I read that, I kind of stopped doing the research for it because I was like, it gave me the chills. It gave me the wiggles. Think about it. He got onto a car accident that, that had a sign on the side of the road that said Omen, O-M-M-E-N, 66.6 kilometers away. I don't know if that sign is still there, but I, I did look it up previously and during the time of the crash back in the 80s, that shit was there. Even the Omen's animal trainers couldn't escape the invisible wrath. And then in the unsettling baboon tax scene, the crew reportedly put a live baboon in the back of the car with Lee Remick, Damien's mother, to antagonize the ones meant to attack the vehicle. That was a freaky ass scene too. Check it out. Instead of reaping havoc on the baboons, the curse of the omen targeted their trainer. The animal trainer hired to assist in the scene was killed the very next day. Producer Harvey Bernhardt detailed a harrowing death. The trainer was killed by a tiger. It grabbed him by the head and killed him instantly. Look, man, I'm not going to say that it was a curse, but just don't fuck. Just don't fuck with goddamn animals. That, that's it. Just leave wild animals in the wild and don't touch them. Curse or not, this fool got fucked up by a tiger. It's a tiger. What do you think? They're great. Yeah, they're great at fucking you up. Oh, I tell you. We're going to wrap this up. I didn't realize that. Oh, shit, it's already past an hour. Nice. So, coincidence or not, I think the exorcist and the omen out of the four or the three that I read, or the four that I read, is it three or four? I think it was three. Out of the three movies that I read, the two, the two ones that are legitimately cursed have to be the exorcist and the omen. I mean, bottom line, do not pass go. I mean, think about it. Think about it. The wife of the special effects person was in a head-on car collision and his wife was decapitated because, okay, hold on. Just saying that sounds insane, right? Right. But he, he fabricated a scene where someone was decapitated only for his wife to be decapitated when he made a decapitation scene in a movie about the devil. Graveyard Grumbler's final rap. All right, check it out, man. So we have the animals... That, that, I mean, ironically killed the trainer who was working on the goddamn Rosemary's Baby movie about the devil. He got, okay. 
curses are real. I fully believe that if you're having, if you, if you have a bad day, don't watch a movie about the devil. I don't know how that song goes. I just know that part. But this, it's hard for me not to believe in a curse. All right. I believe in curses a little more than I believe in, say, ghost. Yeah, I know that doesn't make any sense, Grumbler. I, I, I know that. However, the, the, in, in The Exorcist and The Omen, there are just too, way too, way too many creepy coincidences that points for me not to believe in a curse. All right. It, it, to me, it, it, it's straight out curse. It's straight out something that you shouldn't be fucking with. And how do you do to prevent that? I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a demonologist. I'm not, I'm not anything any, of any specialty. I can claim that I am, but I'm not. It, boy, I tell you. Oh my gosh. So to sum everything up, look, don't fuck around with the Ouija board. Don't fuck around with, with anything negative. Don't fuck around with stuff that's going to cause you a curse. Don't break windows. Don't break mirrors. Don't walk across cats or whatever the theory is. Just, just chill, be friendly, love people. I mean, you don't have to love everybody, but just be courteous, respect those who respect you. And you shouldn't be cursed by anything. Right. And just don't make movies about the devil. If you do get garlic and and holy water or whatever it is that you do to fend off curses. Again, I want to thank everybody for sticking with me. I do apologize for the extended hiatus with the holidays, with work, and and a lot of things that were going on in my job. I didn't have the time to record. I'm going to try to make it try to make it more regular on a weekly basis. I'm going to do my best. At the very least, I'm going to do by by monthly. I'm going to do by monthly releases. My Patreon is back up. It's running. Um, I just released a badass episode that was requested by a Patreon member. I might put a snippet. I might not. It's $5. It's one tier. It's going to be forever $5, no matter how much content I put out. I put. I try to put out at least two, two, uh, two episodes or two content releases a month. And sometimes it's way more. Sometimes it's right at two. It just depends on how much time I have. Again, I have a full-time job. I have a very very busy career. And I try to do this because I just love podcasting. It's one of my favorite things to do in my entire life. So check that out. Graveyard Grumbler podcast. You can look me up on Patreon. I think the link will be in my, in my Instagram. I'll, I'll even put it in the show notes, but other than that, I want to thank each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart. If you think of, if you believe in curses, let me know. Graveyard Grumbler at mail.com. Graveyard Grumbler podcast on Instagram. I want to thank each and every one of you. I appreciate it so much. And as always, good morning, good day, good night. Goodbye. This is the end. This is the end. This is the end. Beautiful friend. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Grumbler.